And that we're starting to view the HPT not as an isolated endocrine circuit, but actually as part of this kind of holistic endocrinology. And from that, you know, I've coined this phrase, oh, the thyroid and the HPT is kind of a first responder. And I think as soon as I started to pull that together, that's when, you know, I could say, oh my God, the whole way I look at thyroid in terms of labs and in terms of its contribution to somebody's whole health story ha has radically shifted. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host, Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased. I think the third time joining us today is Rachel Arthur. Welcome back, Rachel. Thanks so much, Nathan. Nice to be here. Thank you. So today we're going to talk all about thyroid, um, but uh, first I want to acknowledge that I hear recently you've become a, a fellow of the NHAA, so Congratulations on getting that recognition for your hard work over the years in natural medicine. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah, it's an absolute honor. I was truly surprised and um, really pleased. It's lovely. Excellent. Um, so, well, let's dive into, I think pretty much um, everybody knows you, but maybe just quickly, actually, yeah, you're a naturopath and nutritionist. Um, yeah, little little outline of yourself. I guess... Um, to cut to the chase, it's probably that I am very much biased towards or, or my strength is in both nutrition and diagnostics and um, kind of marrying the two and trying to use both of those really as a way for more bridges to be built between what might be regarded as mainstream medicine and the more complementary medicine side of things and build bridges between the practice of both of those from clinicians on either side of that bridge as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Firstly, you're, we've got camera on, but we're not sharing that, but you're rugged up. You're, you're down freezing in Melbourne in the winter, you're, but you're usually from the northern northern um, coast of New South Wales? I am. I am. So I'm doing my my hard yards down in Melbourne, as you said, freezing. I'm permanently in big roll neck jumpers and uh, my team laugh at me all the time. They take one look and go, cold, cold? And I say, yeah, <laughs> yes, I am permanently cold. <laughs> and um, how do you divide your time, your are you seeing many patients still doing mentoring plus all the education? You wear a few hats. I, d I do, but increasingly I have really focused on the education of other health professionals. So I was still maintaining a very robust clinical practice until probably a few years ago. It took a long time to wean myself off mm. that. And I'm sure a lot of practitioners listening can relate to that. It is a particular part of our professional experience that is deeply rewarding and it, it's, it is hard to let go of. But I did recognize that if I wanted to really have 
maximal impact on my profession, which is something I'm very passionate about, that my time was definitely better spent, certainly the majority of it, in education. So most of my um, work hours are dedicated to that, either uh, running, as you say, the group mentoring programs that I've been running for many years now for clinicians from new grads through to very seasoned ones, um, delivering education, you know, uh, master course training in diagnostics, things like that, and obviously being um, a big part of the education for integrated doctors as well, where I've been on the faculty for ACNAM and uh, a regular contributor to AMA uh, programs and conferences and training as well. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's make the most of your time then in education and discuss one of your passions that you've been exploring for many years is the thyroid gland and the role that perhaps um, our fat cells or adipocytes play in um, uh, controlling or influencing our thyroid function, potentially a, a, a goitrogen sort of hiding in plain sight. Mm. So before we dive into to fat cells, maybe just give a bit of an overview of the thyroid in the terms of like from a, how it's evolved for you in understanding the thyroid. Um, you know, I sometimes think in natural medicine, there was this sort of precious gland that's really vulnerable and in a closed system and you need to tweak the, the try and get the numbers in this sort of utopian level and everything will, you know, the metabolism will fire up and your mood will clear and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, you pretty get pretty quickly get humbled by practice and also look at the research and it doesn't always to me translate that way. So I'm probably, you know, asking a loaded question here now, but can you just describe sort of the evolution of your understanding of, of the thyroid and how you sort of frame it up now? I think you've just described it really exquisitely. And I, I, suspect that that's a lot of practitioners experiences too in terms of their own evolution of working with thyroid you know whether that's the interpretation of labs or or management of different thyroid disorders in practice for me you know i i started out uh, being asked to deliver some training for acnum over a decade ago to doctors on thyroid health and nutrition and back then, I could see the incredible potential for nutritional medicine, of course, in this area, given, you know, the thyroid gland, the, the composition of thyroid hormones, the pivotal roles of micronutrients, and even back then, quite a body of evidence to say that, that your levels of these micronutrients were major determinants of the overall form and function of that gland. So I was like, woohoo, here we go. We've got the tools, you know, we've got the dispensary, we've got the medicines to, to really um, manage this beautifully. Um, and then, of course, you, you get out there into practice and like you say, the, the kind of the shine wears off because you start to go, well, I have a pretty good, certainly I, I realised a, a deeper understanding of thyroid physiology and interpretation of thyroid function tests than most people and how that interfaces with nutrition. But I found that that all fit together very nicely and neatly in the extremes. You know, I could see a patient with Graves, I could see a patient with uh, Hashimoto's and I could say, I know exactly what's going on here and I, I understand everything. And I can see the part that nutrition needs to play and get some great results. But the majority of patients 
and their thyroid story was somewhere in between. It wasn't at the extremes. It just didn't look quite right. It was something that was harder to sort of put your finger on because it's not a textbook imbalance. You know, it's not at either polarity. And that was where I found that there was a lot of kind of labs that would come up and scenarios, health scenarios in patients that would come up with where I would say, well, I'm not really sure what the thyroid is doing here. I'm not really sure how to, um, you know, what needs to be done to assist the thyroid here. And, and so that's where, like you said, you know, the, the shine sort of rubs off and you go, oh, okay, there's, there, there must be a, a greater level of complexity um, than what we've been taught. Because, of course, education in thyroid physiology, unless you're reading primary papers, you know, research all the time, really does have to talk in those textbook terms. Here's an extreme. Here's another extreme. Here's, you know, the, the perfect picture of a single issue at play influencing this person's thyroid, you know. And you're like, well, you get out in the real world, and it's hardly ever that you see a patient that's got a single issue that is impacting their HPT, you know, access. But in the real world, it's multiple issues all coming together and clashing and creating something that doesn't look anything like the textbooks. So I think the the greatest kind of reframing for me was going back to the research and taking that murky stuff in between and going, well, what are these results really speaking to? If it's not a picture perfect extreme at either end, but there's these kind of murky suboptimal sort of, you know, slightly higher TSH or slightly lower T3 or whatever it was, how do I read these? And by going back to the research and finding that, you know, thyroid research has gone in leaps and bounds over the last decade and that we're starting to view the HPT not as an isolated endocrine circuit but actually as part of this kind of holistic endocrinology and from that you know I've coined this phrase oh the thyroid and the HPT is kind of a first responder and I think as soon as I started to pull that together that's when, you know, I could say, oh, my whole, the whole way I look at thyroid in terms of labs and in terms of its contribution to somebody's whole health story ha has radically shifted. So, yeah, tell me about the, the first responder. Um, I, I got a bit of a sense, but yeah, I'd like you to dive into that and maybe contrast it. Is it like sort of the HP access when there's a stress? That's, yeah, sort of first primary response. How's it responding? Is it like responding to the metabolic environment what's what adjustments yeah. being made and to what sort of stimuli so it, it's very it's a broad range of stimuli really and um the the hpt access i mean you mentioned this before there's a bit of a furphy there's a bit of a misnomer that it is a closed circuit that it is literally just a, a communication loop between the hypothalamus pituitary and the thyroid and back. And therefore that would suggest that the hypothalamus and the pituitary ultimately are the boss of the thyroid. But 
that is far from true. We know that it's not a closed loop and we know that the hypothalamus and pituitary really constitute middle management. And what is above them that is really directing middle management and then in turn directing, you know, the, the output of the thyroid and what I call first line managers, which is uh, deionase activity in target tissues, is what I call the board of directors. And the board of directors are a whole bunch of uh, substances that you're probably reasonably familiar with, things like cortisol, and dopamine, an insulin-like growth factor one, and leptin, and the list goes on. And so these kind of board of directors really are, in effect, reading the whole room, right? They're, they're re kind of speaking to middle management about the totality of that individual's state of play right now. You know, and when you talk about, you know, what kind of stimuli, it's from time of year in terms of season to time of day, you know, uh, day versus night, to time of the cycle in women, to time of life. You know, those board of directors are going to direct the hypothalamus and pituitary and the thyroid in turn differently in adolescence compared to senescence. Because they're reading the room. They're saying, oh, well, okay, here's what's the priority. Here's the amount of available fuel. Here are the environmental, you know, milieu or, or challenges right now. So all of these aspects are the things that ultimately the HPT is responding to. And that response is what we're seeing in those numbers that come up for TSH, T4, and T3. So thank you for that. I have this sort of analogy. It's like the sort of the drummer of the band, like it, it gets told what sort of pace to play and it'll speed up or slow down depending on the environment. So with that, as a metaphor, maybe, um, how do you sort of look at numbers now? Did If there's a aberration, do you try and dig deeper or look further up, you know, speak, look at the board of directors, what they're saying? Um, rather than just taking it on face value. So how do you, yeah, contextualize this? Absolutely. It, it is nothing if not context, right? Because it is just a responder. I mean, there are instances, of course, where there are actual architectural problems with the gland. You know, there is a nodule, there is a cancer. There, You know, those kind of um, issues of form. But more often than not, what we're seeing in those numbers is an expression of function. And that function is a reflection of context, all of the context that that individual is exposed to. So when you start seeing through things and TFTs and, you know, uh, adrenal assessments as well, through this lens of holistic endocrinology, nothing's, you know, irrelevant everything gets taken in you you have to uh take in the whole the whole story entirely all right so one of those players that we want to discuss now is um obesity or, or fat mass uh and again there's maybe been some i don't know stereotypes around the role of hypothyroidism in obesity i remember 
a long time ago reading is a Broder Barnes. He wrote that seminal book and it seemed like, seemed like everyone's hypothyroidism. You just crack their thyroid and all their ailments will uh, improve. Um, and I think there's still a bit of a legacy thinking that low thyroid is a, a key contributor to obesity. What's your take on the, you know, the causal relationship between low thyroid or thyroid and um, fat mass? Well, I think again, you're, you're right onto it. I mean, I think that was the song I was sold was that if someone had weight management issues, one of the top differentials as a naturopath was to screen them for a sub-functioning thyroid. And, you know, vigilantly, we all did that, right? Diligently, a lot of people are still doing that. But like you, didn't actually see in practice that boosting T3 numbers necessarily um, was the holy grail of weight loss. It, it just wasn't, you know, and I've seen people's uh, T3 numbers being, you know, really boosted. Yeah. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't the the source of perfect weight management or a great mood, you know, as, as you said at the outset. It, it was deeply problematic a lot of the time and failed to deliver on a lot of the things that they had hoped for. And when you go to the research and you kind of say, well, is this just a uh, disconnect like does the research support that notion that correction of hypothyroidism will drive weight loss then you find no the research doesn't support it either in fact the evidence in support of weight loss through you know re-establishment of euthyroidism in people who have sub-functioning is very weak and very underwhelming mm. the average weight loss for individuals who do get their low thyroid treated is three kilos and you go yeah that's not that's not particularly impressive is it um so i was always like wow that is the elephant in the room right we've got something wrong here in our understanding now we know that you know weight gain continues to be mentioned and forever will be mentioned as a potential manifestation of you know, low thyroid hormone values, particularly low T3. Um, but why then is it that boosting that isn't the answer for people, you know, overwhelmingly? So what came out of more recent research is this concept of reverse causality, which is that when we see an individual who does have high levels of adiposity, that in fact, the lower or, or the impact, sorry, their TFT levels are actually a consequence, you know, of that adiposity. That the adiposity is not benign or, or irrelevant here. The adiposity, as we've been explaining, is going to impact that board of directors. Leptin, IGF-1, cortisol, etc. all of these different players on the board of directors, and that in turn will drive an adaptive response from the HPT. So there's a variety of mechanisms by which excess adiposity can be viewed as a goitrogen, you know, the source of weight pro you know uh, the source of thyroid problems rather than the other way around 
One is again at the level of form, you know, and if you read the latest research, you'll find that, you know, iodine and nutrition, that topic has always been dominated by iodine, you know, thyroid and nutrition has always been about you either have too little iodine and all hell breaks loose because you're more predisposed to nodules and this and that and goiter and blah, blah, blah. Um, or you have too much and that's problematic as well. But what's become the latest hot topic in nutrition is not iodine, but actually just excess energy intake. And excess energy intake is now pipping iodine at the post as being regarded as the greatest disruptor of gland architecture. And it is kind of akin to what we've come to appreciate about how literally fat around organs penetrate those organs and disrupt, you know, anatomy and in turn disrupt physiology, just like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Well, now we know that fat around the thyroid gland is not benign. It is penetrating into the gland and it is disrupting form and in turn disrupts function. But in addition to that, as we've been saying, if you have either too little uh, in terms of uh, adipose tissue or too much, it's completely going to change top-down directives because that changes your leptin, your IGF-1, you know, and so on and so forth. And the HPT will in turn respond to and reflect that kind of reading of the room. How much fuel does this person have and how much fuel, therefore, should we be using? Wow. Thank you. It was a, a, a podcast in itself. So a couple of things. Firstly, um, I think you mentioned in one of your podcasts, the 1330, the correlation between fat mass and overt thyroid pathology, or may have read it somewhere else, like thyroid cancers and so forth. Um, so yeah, just as from a, a gross perspective, a macro perspective, there is a, a relationship with thyroid pathologies and um, excess weight. Yes, there is. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and it comes down to kind of a really simple mechanism. And and I think this is a great one if people can take it. And, you know, it's a kind of a simple take home. That kind of singular focus historically around iodine deficiency being the source of all evil when it came to gland, you know, thyroid gland disruption. It, you know, it 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 has a series of mechanisms linked to it, but at its core, one of the most powerful pathophysiological players there is the fact that iodine deficiency drives TSH up, right? And until you correct for that iodine deficiency, that TSH won't normalize. Well, TSH is a trophic agent for the gland. So it promotes growth. And if your TSH is elevated over a long period of time, it promotes excessive growth and it starts to promote excessive aberrant growth. And that includes nodule, you know, nodule development, but it also is very much implicated in thyroid cancer. Yeah. So if we now substitute iodine deficiency as the underpinning reason why TSH is up, with excess nutrition, like just excess energy intake, full stop, which also 
for a lot of individuals equates to high normal TSH, then you see the same fallout. So you know what I'm saying, Nathan? Like literally yes. we, we're shifting gears from this. It's all about iodine deficiency. You're, you know, so many countries are now fortifying with iodine. And the research is also kind of changing lanes and going, yeah, yeah, it's not really all about iodine. <laughs> it seems to be that we're eating too much. And when yeah. we eat too much, that for a lot of people will drive up TSH because the board of directors is, you know, one, one uh, member of that board is leptin. And as that's rising to signal the greater degree of adiposity in that patient, in that individual, then the HPT is receiving the directive, you know, I use this term, have fuel, so fight. You know, oh, how how is the HPT going to respond? Well, we're going to try and correct for this excess nutrition by, you know, using more whip. You know, the, the, we're going to release more TSH. So in turn, the gland releases more T4 and we see greater peripheral conversion to T3. And this will help us to burn fuel. This is a compensatory kind of attempt in that in that scenario. Does that make sense? I missed. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, not at all. I have a, a few questions around uh, the sort of type of adiposity. Mm. Um, it sort of comes up time occasionally around you know is it subcutaneous? Is it visceral? Is it around the organs? Mm. And there's criticisms about BMI. Yes. Which sort of leads into, I suppose, that the treatment, um, is it low carb? Is it, you know, circadian timing, all that sort of stuff? Uh, I suppose another load, loaded sort of statement. I'm on the view, as you said, like, I think we're wired to seek out calories. And in this, you know, food environment where there's hyperpalatal food, it's really easy to overeat and just gain weight. Is there any value? So I think BMI is, you know, a, a crude measure, but it, it's a pretty good proxy. Like, do we need to get any sort of more detailed in understanding obesity or is yeah like bmi and just um say you know your, your net weight a good measure or do we need to like be measuring waist circumference and mm. you know ultrasounding thyroids and things yeah look it's such a i i love talking about this because i think my own understanding of adipose tissue continues to evolve you know and and, and probably I'm on that journey with a lot of, you know, good company. I think that um, BMI is crude. Uh, it doesn't, we all know, you know, that famous kind of thing, like you can just be really uh, loaded. You can be really buff, can't you, Nathan, and have a very high BMI. <laughs> now. Really reflecting out of paucity. So, so we know that it's very crude. And I also would say that... Um, Okay, the research that I've been kind of speaking to with you, where we say uh, excess adiposity, you know, uh, disturbs thyroid form and function, um, they are using BMI, right? They are saying once you get into the obese category, once your BMI is over 30, that's how they define it. But I think it is, it is more nuanced than that. And there's a couple of elements to that. One is I do think that we carry weight differently. And I, I haven't yet found a more sophisticated way to say that. Mm. But I think 
you know, whether it's genes, whether it's ethnicity, whatever it is, obviously we're not one size fits all. And I think that um, we can see each individual individually in how that adipose, that level of adipose tissue is, you know, how it sits for them. And I, my interpretation of that, yes, I take BMI, yes, I take waist circumference, but I'm also looking at the labs and, you know, I'm obsessed with looking at those. <laughs> so I'm also looking at the labs because the labs will literally, these are just routine labs. Like I'm not measuring leptin, right? I'm looking at LFTs and I'm looking at HOMA IR and things like that and fasting triglycerides which literally go, this is a problem, this is too much for this person, or actually they're okay. And and yep. sometimes that isn't always perfectly aligned with BMI, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, I just thought um, yeah. there's what there's like metabolic markers you can look for overnutrition, right? Like triglycerides and lipids, like <laughs> do, do you Absolutely. consider that plus their weight? Yeah. Absolutely. Excuse me, I'm in Melbourne, I'm coughing. Um, and, and so also looking at, um, you know, ALT as being a really good marker of um, ALT and GGT as being the most sensitive kind of, you know, certainly in, in uh, liver function tests that we see all the time, the ones most likely to flag when adiposity is a little excessive for that individual. And remember, we're not using the reference ranges provided by the laboratories, which are there to describe, you know, uh, your threshold for suspicion of a liver disease. We're actually looking at much narrower reference ranges because we've been able to redefine what healthy looks like. So, uh, you know, a GGT for a woman should never be over 19. You know, it's very, very different to the reference ranges that the labs are giving us. So if you're using those kind of uh, deeper uh, diagnostic insights, then then you can look at each individual and you can say, well, I can see that whatever your BMI, whatever your waist circumference, this is a little excessive for you or, you know, yeah. significantly excessive or, or you seem to be, um, you know, that seems to be a sweet spot for you. And, and so I think taking all that information into account is really important. I think the other thing that you touched on is this kind of burgeoning understanding about different types of fat. And, and we've gone, you know, certainly well beyond um, even just the distinction between visceral uh, adipose tissue and mm. subcutaneous. So that still is a relevant um uh, and worthy distinction to make. But what comes up particularly with reference and respect to how a thyroid or how the HPT access will be impacted uh, and how that might be different in two individuals who both have a BMI in uh, the obese category comes down to the composition of their fat. And in particular, whether their fat, their adipose tissue is dominated by M1 macrophages or M2. And I'm sure you've yeah. heard a bit about this, Nathan. Yeah, we'll dive into it. So this is the the macrophages that infiltrate the fat cells. This creates this like meta-inflammation, which I might just sort of flag 
is that why the brain thinks it's like an infection or something that's got to boost um, metabolic yeah. rate? And but the M1 is the sort of the pro-inflammatory phenotype, and the M2 is that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, it flips over to the the, the um, lipid with the lipid mediators, the resolving inflammation. So yeah, uh, people who are overweight or pathologically overweight, uh, they have more of the M1 phenotype. Yeah, generally speaking, but it is still like you'll still find. I mean, I was just looking at a case um, in mentoring uh, this week. I think this person has gained 15 kilos in a very short period of time, pushing them quite high with their BMI. But I would argue strongly based on a whole lot of ev different, e you know, sources of evidence that I'm picking up in that case that um, they're still M2 dominant and which is the more favorable one, as, as you said. Yeah. Um, more likely to, to, yes, it's still inflammatory. Yes, it's still, you know, uh, endocrine uh, active tissue that is problematic and whatever, but not as problematic as adipose tissue that is uh, dominated by uh, macrophage type 1, which creates this greater level of dysfunction. Um, we see hypertrophy of the adipocytes as opposed to hyperplasia in M1-dominant right. tissue. Um, which is you, you can see this sometimes perhaps arguably uh, with the greater uh, proneness to uh, dimpling and things like that, the greater proneness mm -hmm. to cellulite. There's a little bit of a, perhaps a, um, a, a suggestion there that that's more M1 um, dominant tissue. Um, but this M1 dominant adipose tissue is radically pro-inflammatory it's radically metabolically disruptive um and so it will uh predispose that patient to insulin resistance at a lower bmi you know mm -hmm. so so that's what's so interesting you know it reminds me of that old ad you know there was an ad and i am showing my age and i'm <laughs> making you come along with me here nathan <laughs> I'm, I think yeah, I'm you remember this ad too which was something about car engine oils and Oils ain't oils. Oils, oils aren't oils. And I think we've kind of come to this place where we're like, mm, adipocytes aren't, you know, ain't adipocytes. They're all different. And the the difference is really a, a powerful player, a very a strong determinant of overall impact, you know, of, of how that is really going to impact the greater health story of that individual. And certainly how it's going to impact their HPT because it's the yeah. M1 dominant adipose tissue that, as we said, yes, it's more likely to be VAT than subcutaneous, but even VAT can be M1 dominant or M2 dominant. Um, it's more likely to be hypertrophic rather than hyperplastic. Uh, it's more likely that this individual will have, when you look at their labs, uh, insulin resistance appearing at a lower BMI, for example, and, and more pronounced inflammatory markers, you know, elevations. That's the, the adipose tissue that is going to create rather than um, the sort of pattern we described before in, in people with excess adiposity where the HPT response says, oh, we've got fuel, let's try and fight our way out of this let's you know release more tsh and in turn 
actually uh, convert more T4 to T3 and that sort of thing so that we can literally burn fuel to, to fight our way out of obesity. But in individuals, they might have the same BMI on paper, but if their adipose tissue is M1 dominant, then you're unlikely to see that upregulation response by the HPT. You will instead see a shutdown. You'll see that the TSH is, is not high. It, you know, the T3 is not high normal, but actually you're seeing a, a kind of quiescent TSH, a, a lower T3. And this is because, as you say, the greatest reading of the room in that individual is inflammation. And it says, in very simple terms, we're really sick. We should not be burning fuel. Mm. We need to preserve all the energy we have for our immune system. Even though the source of that sickness, so to speak, is not an infection. You know, it, it, it actually is just this pro-inflammatory form of adipose tissue for that individual. Wow. So with this sterile inflammation, are there any metrics you can use to determine if a patient's more M1 versus M2 or is it that sort of uh, metabolic dysfunction that's out of proportion to their, their weight? Do you do any sort yes. of specific measures for inflammation? Yeah, I'm not aware if there's specific, you know, the, the, if there's more refined ways to make that call. But I think once you learn about this and you you start to really go out there and see your client base through this new kind of informed place, you start to find your feet very quickly. And it's yeah. not just, as we said, calculating BMI and taking waist circumference. It's looking at the distribution of that fat. It's being alert to at what level of adiposity were they already insulin resistant or not and more so you know we're talking about reverse causality you know causality was i can't even say it you know what yeah. i mean um i am often looking at what their thyroid's doing and saying and reading back from that does that make sense right. now, like i'm yeah, looking yeah. at their thyroid and going well i know you've got m1 dominant right <laughs> that makes sense issue. yeah uh, yeah. Because look at what your look at the the top down directive. Your TSH is low, your T three is low, and you're shunting towards RT three. You're favouring deactivation. So I know what your um, top down directive is, and that is we are sick. We cannot burn fuel right now. We have to preserve fuel for fighting this sickness, you know, that's yeah. essentially it. So how do you, we go about, or you go about addressing this with people? I know you've mentioned that in some patients, there's a, a population of bariatric patients who don't favorably respond to the therapy and they may be in this bucket. What's the sort of treatment look like? Is it sort of anti-inflammatories mm. um, and still obviously diet and exercise or whatever, but um, are they non-responders to that? They are. So again, I want to just remind us all that the dominant pattern, like if we are looking at TFTs, 
in, you know, hundreds of overweight individuals, individuals who have excess adiposity for them, the dominant pattern is up actually the one we mentioned earlier. It's the upregulation. It's that the HPT responds with kind of the, the motto, have fuel, will fight. We're going to have higher TSH and we're going to have high normal T3. And obviously that is problematic and it is what I call a failed fix. It, it doesn't generate weight loss. You know, it, it doesn't quite fix the problem, but they, it is a more favorable HPT response, if you like. Um, in those individuals, we know that um, weight loss is, is, you know, ground level uh, intervention for these people, that you can throw anything else you want at them and it is not going to make any difference because they are literally responding to high leptin levels. And until those leptin levels come down, you know, and until you start to uh, lower the size of the uh, adipose mass, you're not going to see any normalization of those TFTs. The lesser, uh, you know, the less common pattern is the one we just described. And that, that surprises a lot of people, but it, it is true. You will less often see that what's winning is in fact this inflammatory signal or leptin resistance or whatever. And so the TFT is actually, you know, reflecting HPT shutdown. In these individuals, if you restrict carbohydrates and you make them exercise or you restrict energy and you make them exercise, they get absolutely nowhere. Whereas in the first group, they're going to get somewhere, right? But in this pattern, you have to uh, have an anti-inflammatory strategy first and foremost, because clearly the call to action is to lower that pro-inflammatory signal that is, you know, dominating the board of directors and telling all the other components of the HPT access that right now we can't afford to burn any fuel. So that is the strategy in that second pattern. Right. So for, um, any specific anti-inflammatories? I wonder, I think like the, the lipid mediators that derive from fish oil are the precursors. I think maybe those specialized pro-resolving mediators are probably helpful there, but is it, are there herbs, anything else that you would I, consider as it? I think a lot of our general anti-inflammatory strategies, herbs included, nutrients included, make good sense here. Like yeah. I do think that we have a, a very strong kind of dispensary in the area of anti-inflammatories. You know, it's not just curcumin. There's a lot of flavonoid-rich herbs that have very powerful anti-inflammatory effects here. And yep. so I think that they all can have a place here for sure. Okay. Um, just back to leptin, I'm curious on this one. You've mentioned a little bit. Um, I've struggled to sort of conceptualize this one. I feel like leptin is the hormone. Its absence indicates starvation, uh, but the, it's not terribly like linear that the more leptin you have, the more will upregulate your, um, ap uh, not appetite, or downregulate appetite and upregulate your metabolic rate. So, um, for example, I think administering leptin doesn't really have a huge effect in people who are overweight, mm -hmm. but there is this sort of concept of leptin resistance floating around. 
Um, can you, I suppose, describe your understanding and, and like, do you, you don't measure leptin? Is it more of just a conceptual thing that you use as a framework? It is. And I think what I, what I have been reading in the research around this kind of notion of, of reverse causality between, uh, adiposity and thyroid function is that if we make really the the center of our focus here that either somebody's adipose tissue um, is just driving high leptin or their adipose tissue is yes it's driving high leptin but hand in hand with that it is this really uh, menacing pro-inflammatory uh, signal and they would say that the pro you know the, the higher the pro-inflammatory cytokines the more likely it appears that leptin, doesn't matter how high it is, the, we're starting to demonstrate resistance. You know, the, the leptin message is not um, being translated. So I guess, you know, we can continue to sort of flesh out that idea about how much leptin itself, you know, is, is what we should focus on. But I think that the research is saying, just understand that probably the most important player here in that uh, group of individuals who have a shutdown HPT in response to adiposity, the most important player is the pro-inflammatory cytokines. And whether you had high leptin or low leptin, pro-inflammatory cytokines, like we saw in COVID, in acute COVID, tell your gland to stop releasing T4 and they, te- you know, and it clearly tells your muscles to stop converting T4 to T3. Like it is a very well established phenomenon. This one of some people call it low T3 syndrome. Some call it uh euthyroid six syndrome, but it is a, a, you know, this classic shutdown of the HPT in response to acute inflammation. So, you know, what, what we're really saying is, look, the leptin is interesting and still up for debate in patients with that excess adiposity where their TSH is low and their T3 is low and they're actually shunting to reverse T3. Know more than anything else that their pro-inflammatory cytokines are raging. And then that has told them go to bed, you know, rest up and don't burn any energy, you know, yeah. and, and in turn, the, the, the HP2 is, T is doing its bit to suppress metabolic rate so that you can conserve your energy to, you know, fight whatever is the source of that, you know, acute inflammation and illness, which as we said, yeah. is just the adipose tissue. Yeah. All right. Uh, one last question, changing gears and more out of Curiosity, I'm not sure if there's much published yet, but the the rise of popularity of the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist like semaglutide, to me the data looks pretty impressive in the weight loss. It's almost comparable to bariatric surgery. Obviously, got to continue taking it. I haven't seen any data yet. I haven't looked too much on thyroid function. I don't know if you... I think this is coming, um, that the, the widespread use of this, whether you like it or not, sort of thing... Um, any thoughts on um, its effects on thyroid or, or metabolism? As I said, they seem to 
it works in the brain. They feel less hungry. They eat less, but I haven't seen any signal that it's like suppresses thyroid or anything. I don't know. Um, just wanted to throw it out there. Any, any sort of thought, preliminary thoughts on, on these medications? Not, not yet. I'm, I think I'm in a little bit of denial. I appreciate that that is, uh, probably wasted denial because I agree with you. We seem to be on this trajectory. Um, but I, I will be fascinated to see what does come out because, you know, we've, we've just mentioned some of the kind of main characters that are on that board of directors, but there are, there's a much bigger cast of minor players mm. you know, in the future. We might find are actually quite major, you know, things like bile acids and, you know, extraordinary, mm. um, uh, other uh, molecules that we never thought would be having a say in, in, you know, kind of how the thyroid behaves. So I, I will be very, very interested to watch this space. But I, like you, I haven't seen anything come out yet. Yeah, 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 exactly. Watch this space. Yeah. All right. We, it's been a, a great tour around the thyroid in, in context of fat mass. Um, just, yeah, any sort of take-home messages you've gone through a bit, I suppose, maybe just like a uh, testing assessment. You've got a bit of a um, hierarchy or or method you follow in assessing thyroid under this new lens? Look, I, I don't think the nature of the labs I want to see has changed. I think it's just yeah. literally the way I read them that has undergone a pretty radical revolution, which is as we've been talking about viewing the HPT is first and foremost, a, a responder, um, not, not, you know, just going rogue on its own and, and just misbehaving that it's actually responding to an enormous amount of contextual elements to that individual. But I haven't, you know, I haven't seen the need at all to go beyond just standard TFTs. Um, I would occasionally, but not always, uh, request a reverse T3. Right. And of course I'm looking at antibodies at the same time, yep. but when you're pulling that together with, you know, as I've mentioned, a really deep understanding about the enormous insights that come from routine labs. I mean, we've mentioned a series just as part of this conversation, right? You know, fasting triglycerides, ALT, GGT. When you know how to extract optimal understanding from those and you marry that together with this new diagnostic uh, reading of TFTs, there's not a, le a lot left to the imagination. There's not many situations mm -hmm. where I go, gee, I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah. Yeah. I go, oh, no, that reads like a pretty... There's a pretty complete book there. You know, I think I yeah. understand context and I understand response and I understand therefore what the treatment objectives are and how to redress. Excellent. Yeah. All right. And Rachel, so where can people learn out more, find out more? You've got a program, have you on thyroid? And I'm also curious, what's the response been like? Is this one of your blockbusters? <laughs> it is a bit of a blockbuster. I mean, we were... Um, delighted to do our kind of to pull together our foundational training in uh comprehensive diagnostics which was master course one that was gosh can you believe it nathan that was like 
three or four years ago now. It feels yeah. like five yeah. minutes ago. Um, my adrenals think it was five minutes ago. Um, so we did that, which was the interpretation of all those routine labs that we mentioned, you know, yes. lipids and liver enzymes and, you know, white cell counts and all of those sorts of things. And we had an enormous take up of that from practitioners of all modalities, GPs, medical specialists, naturopaths, herbalists, you name it. And we promised them at the end of that, that we would come, you know, come with a new offering. It just took us a little bit of time, uh, to get there. So master course two is now available and that is on thyroid and adrenal diagnostics. So we've set the foundation in master course one of really, you know, um, core skills in how to read labs and, and, and. They are skills that you can apply everywhere. Um, but thyroid and adrenal diagnostics obviously is a very distinct offering. As I mentioned, it's not going into any wild and, and wonderfully expensive testing. It's actually looking at the testing that comes out of mainstream labs and just optimizing your understanding about though, you know, how to read those, as we said, from this kind of holistic endocrinology framework. So that master course two in thyroid and adrenal diagnostics is now available as a product, as a training that people can do themselves at their own pace, at their own leisure. But we're now offering a bonus um, option to join me live. So we will kick off our watch party. So we will watch those sessions together and also undertake a live Q&A after those sessions. Nice. Um, across seven weeks, and that kicks off on seven the third of August. And, Perfect. And uh, yeah, and and that's very exciting. Awesome. Well, congratulations. And sorry, the the first program is still available, like on demand. If people miss yeah, the first program is still available, and we will be again moving forward with the same models. So, um, for those people who want to do Master Course One, again, they can do it at their own pace. But in next year, we will be. Uh, offering everybody who owns that product an opportunity to join me live. I just know that there's so much good training out there, but we all sometimes need our handheld to sit down right. and watch it and yes. have the opportunity to, you know, ask a question and I'll be there live on the session sitting on the chat box. So it's kind of like this win-win for people where it's like, um, you know, they've kind of got me dare I say it, God forbid, in stereo, I'm delivering the training, but I'm also sitting there on the chat box answering the question. Excellent. And when, what day or night would that be on? Just a so we're, um, kicking off on the 3rd of August. It'll be every Thursday from the 3rd of August through until um, mid-September. And where um, the sessions are running at 4.30 p.m. Uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. We've tried to find a time that works because yeah. we have a lot of Kiwi <laughs> followers and a lot of followers yeah. in the Western States. WA. Yeah. yeah. So it's trying to find that sweet spot, which is always Excellent. tricky. Yeah. Oh, well, it's good to yeah, broadcast so people can um, block out their diaries. It's yeah, great initiative. I, I'm looking forward to hearing the response from that. Well, thanks so much, Rachel. It's been great again um, to, to dive into the detail. I love your ability to sort of put on your science hat, but also your clinician's hat and that, that sort of holistic take and, and deliver it in those metaphors and, and expose my age knowing those um, TV commercials as well. <laughs> So thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Nathan. Great to join you. For useful links and resources, 
make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.